The year, 1878. The place, Afghanistan. The British Empire has decided, for whatever reason, to send its armies back into the graveyard of empires. It's round two of the Anglo-Afghan Wars. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to season two of Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and this is episode number 34, Return to the Graveyard of Empires. To all my loyal, dedicated listeners who are coming back from season one, welcome to season two. We are going to go globe hopping so much this season, y'all. Some of these episodes will be half geography lesson and half history lesson. Come prepared. I'll be up front. I'm not sure exactly how long this season will be. Like a TV show, I have finales planned if everything goes ahead of schedule, or if I fall behind. I have multiple courses of action, but rest assured, I will deliver as much quality content as fast as I can. You are my loyal audience, and as long as you listen and toss a coin to your podcaster, I will continue to produce. But today's episode will talk all about the Second Anglo-Afghan War, 1878-1880, to sort of a sequel to the debut episode, episode number one, Graveyard of Empires. Now, you do not have to listen to that episode before listening to this one. I am going to give you a solid previously on at the beginning of this episode, a quick review of what happened in the First Anglo-Afghan War of 1839-42. to But if you're confused by the context or the situation or any of that stuff, well, episode one might help. It's still a cracking good listen, if I do say so myself, even if it was the first episode. So if you want, I'll give you the chance to check out episode one again. Three, two, one. All right, guys, we're on our way. Welcome to season two. The song remains the same. This is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on. Podcast is PG-13. Language is clean. The content is not. All my sources, some images, some maps, some commentary will be posted on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com. So if you want it, that's where you can find it. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. Today's story begins with a poem. Rudyard Kipling is one of the world's most famous authors, well known for his children's books and short stories and even novels, and for basically being the PR guy for the British Empire. We will hear from Kipling again throughout this season. He pops up quite a bit. But Kipling also liked to write poems about the British Army. Many of them were collected in his book, Barrack Room Ballads, published in 1890. Some of these still resonate today. I highly recommend the poem Tommy, which contains some sentiments that a lot of veterans will recognize. Another Barrack Room Ballad, The Young British Soldier, is basically like a wise old sergeant telling his young private how to behave, to avoid bad liquor, illness, heat stroke, military discipline, and worst of all, marriage to an ill-tempered, spendy woman. But Kipling concludes with a final bit of advice for the young British soldier. When you're wounded and left on Afghanistan's plains, and the women come out to cut up what remains, just roll to your rifle and blow out your brains, and go to your god like a soldier. 
Psych, you thought this was going to be a light, fun story of people killing each other. Like I keep saying, <laughs> language is clean, content is not. The British wars in Afghanistan left a mark. You've got Kipling's poems, you got Lady Butler's paintings of the remnants of an army. In the first Sherlock Holmes novel, A Study in Scarlet, when Holmes meets Watson for the first time, he deduces that Watson was wounded in Afghanistan. In the war we're talking about today, in the Battle of My Wand, which we will witness today. My Wand would end up being a particularly scarring moment for the British Empire. Kind of a funny but not funny fact that in the BBC show Sherlock, set in the modern day, Holmes could do almost the entire scene line for line and it was still a little bit too real, <laughs> a little bit too current. But the Anglo-Afghan wars were significant events for Afghanistan too. Lots of outside observers see Afghanistan as an almost timeless, biblical place where nothing has changed and never will change. But Afghanistan has changed as a result of every invasion that has crossed its border, be it British, Russian, or American. The status quo does not reassert itself after each of these invasions. It's too easy for Western observers to see the Afghans as a people apart from time, as somehow outside history, either helpless victims or bloodthirsty barbarians, but never the actors. But my main point throughout this entire season, season two, that's my point for this season, is that people who aren't Westerners or Europeans, the normal protagonists of our history, are protagonists. They have agency, choices, their own stories. They are fully-fledged participants in history, not just antagonists or victims. If the title of Graveyard of Empires sounds ominous to us, it might be a source of pride and pain to the Afghans. The place where imperial hubris goes to die, but inflicts enormous damage in its wake. Each side of the story has its own heroes or heroines or villains. Which is which? Well, I'll let you decide that. Because today, we'll be talking about the Second Anglo-Afghan War. The second time the British thought it was just an amazing idea to invade Afghanistan. We're going to review the causes and events of the First War and see why and how the Second War came about. We will witness the British invade Afghanistan once again, and history won't repeat itself, but it will come pretty darn close. We will see the effect this second encounter had on both the British and the Afghans, and tie up the Anglo-Afghan wars with a final summary. And at the end, I will tell you why it matters. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And in Season 2, our breaks will be somewhat more extended. I've bumped them up in length, just because you guys need more rest than you've been getting. These are your chance to pause, pick up the dog's prescriptions, microwave some beans, do the thing you need to do. So load your rifle. Tilt your pith helmet to block out the sun, and whatever you do, make sure you save at least one round, just in case worst comes to worst. It's a dangerous graveyard of empires out there. Let's go on our first campaign of Season 2. The chain of events that led to the Second Anglo-Afghan War was uncomfortably similar to the first one. History not repeating itself, but rhyming. So let's go back and recap the first war, real fast. Okay, 
Previously on the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. Queen Victoria's British Empire was the dominant power of the 19th century, worldwide. Its crown jewel, the source of much of its power and wealth, was India, and a very reluctant partner in that empire. But Britain felt threatened by Russia's rising power in Central Asia, which seemed to loom ever closer to India. Britain and Russia's clandestine Cold War-style struggle for Central Asia was known as the Great Game. And the Great Game centered on Afghanistan, which lay between the British and Russian spheres of influence. Afghanistan contains the main land routes into India, especially the Khyber Pass. Anyone trying to invade India must pass through Afghanistan. Afghanistan is a complicated country, very mountainous and divided, diverse in both its geography and its people. The largest single ethnic groups are the Pashtuns, but they are not an absolute majority, and they themselves are split into dozens of tribes which rarely get along with each other, much less with the Uzbeks, Tajiks, Hazaras, Aymaks, Nuristanis, and other minorities. Afghanistan is less a nation and more a set of borders around a fiercely independent kaleidoscope of peoples. Afghanistan's emirs, or kings, of the Durrani dynasty ruled a very decentralized kingdom, where their power depended on the support of tribal leaders and local elites. Any succession crisis tended to be violent, with dozens of brothers and sons and cousins all killing each other for the throne. For the British, there was only one solution to this security dilemma. For India to be safe from Russian invasion, Afghanistan must be secured. They tried to use diplomacy at first. Emir Dost Mohammad Khan seemed open to a British alliance. But more radical imperialists sought direct control over Afghanistan, and they won the argument. Britain decided to invade Afghanistan and replace Dost Muhammad with an alternative, the exiled Shah Shuja Durrani. This decision initiated the First Anglo-Afghan War in March 1839. The British army that invaded Afghanistan consisted of some British units, but mostly Indian sepoy units led by British officers. The capture of Ghazni in July 1839 broke the morale of Dost Muhammad's regime, and they fled into the mountains. Dost Muhammad himself eventually surrendered and went into exile in India. The British occupied Kabul and restored Shah Shuja to his throne. Even though low-level fighting continued throughout 1840 and 1841, it seemed like the British campaign was a success. But Afghan resentment simmered under the surface, especially against British agents William McNaughton and Alexander Burns, who dominated Shah Shuja, basically using him as a puppet. The problem with puppet governments is that the more useful they are to the puppet master, the less legitimate they are to the people, the more obvious it is that they're a puppet. High taxes, rising prices, British troops, and British meddling angered many Afghans, particularly the fiercely independent Pashtun tribes. What really undermined the British, though, was their attempt to, quote, reform Afghanistan, to make it more civilized by their definition. Britain tried to impose a frame of centralized Western-style rule on a society that placed higher priorities on local ties, ethnic identity, and local Islamic leaders. The tribal chiefs, especially the Pashtuns, resented the loss of their traditional rights and privileges. The volcano erupted in November 1841, when uprisings spread throughout Afghanistan like lightning. Most isolated British outposts were overwhelmed and slaughtered. A street mob assembled in Kabul, taking advantage of British paralysis to seize control of the city. The result was the brutal murder of both Alexander Burns and William McNaughton, with McNaughton's body dismembered and hung from a hook in the marketplace. 
Then the Afghans, led by Dost Muhammad's charismatic son Akbar Khan, surrounded the poorly planned British army encampment, the Cantonment, outside the city. The British army was led by General William Elphinstone, an amazingly indecisive and incompetent commander, like bottom 20 of all historical generals. Elphinstone dithered for months before accepting an Afghan offer of safe passage through the mountains, a promise they immediately violated. The retreat from Kabul, January 6th through 13th, 1842, was one of the most epic disasters in British history. Elphinstone's army disintegrated in the freezing, snow-covered mountains as they were swarmed by the mountain tribes. Elphinstone himself, along with many officers and their families, fell into a trap and was taken prisoner. The rest of the army was massacred in the snow and ice of the Cord Kabul Pass. At the village of Gandamak, a handful of survivors, including the remnant of the 44th Foot, made their last stand. Only a few survived the retreat from Kabul, most famously Dr. William Bryden, whose escape was portrayed in Lady Butler's painting, Remnants of an Army. The disastrous retreat from Kabul did not end the war. A new army was assembled under General George Pollock to storm the Khyber Pass and avenge the disaster. In September 1842, Pollock's army retook Kabul, exacted retribution through random massacres and destruction, and freed the British prisoners. The Redcoats evacuated, claiming victory, but no one, British or Afghan, really believed this. Within a few months, Dost Muhammad returned from exile to reclaim his throne as Emir of Afghanistan. The First Anglo-Afghan War was one of the most miserable failures in British military history. For the Afghans, it was considered a victory, but notably a victory won by the Afghan people, not its leaders or its elites. Despite the ethnic and religious rifts that existed and continue to exist within Afghanistan, the First Anglo-Afghan War created some sense of unity. The idea of an Afghan collective identity seems to have begun in 1842, when they came together to expel the infidel English from their land. Afghanistan was well on the way to becoming the graveyard of empires. And that wraps up the events depicted in Unknown Soldiers Podcast Episode 1. So, recap is done. Recap's over. Everything after this is new information. So with all that said, why on earth would Britain go back? It's like a horror movie where you think they've escaped, but the idiots decide to go back into the haunted house because she forgot her purse or something. So why would you invade Afghanistan again? Well, let's get there. When Dost Muhammad Khan reclaimed his throne in Kabul, his position looked fragile. After all, it's Afghanistan. There's always someone gunning for you when you're on top in Afghanistan. But Dost Muhammad would remain on top in Afghanistan for the next 20 years, mainly because he was just playing good at his job. Dost Muhammad is remembered as a great leader in Afghanistan today, especially for his anti-British resistance. But his actual relationship with the British was a bit more complicated than Ha Ha I Beat You. When the dust cleared after the war, they formed a low-key alliance. The British gave Dost Muhammad guns and money, and he used them to re-establish control after Afga over Afghanistan, winning over the tribes and knocking out any rivals. And as far as the British were concerned, Dost Muhammad was pretty cool. Why did we want to overthrow that guy anyway? By giving him guns and money and letting him re-establish authority over Afghanistan, the British turned Dost Muhammad into their shield against Russian interference. And in return, Dost Muhammad didn't take advantage of times in history when Britain was weak, such as the Crimean War, 
or the Sepoy Mutiny, aka Indian War of Independence, aka the 1857 War. It goes by lots of names, that's a whole controversy. It's the 1857 War. So both Britain and Afghanistan had a pretty decent thing going. The British called this policy, the policy they're following now, masterly inactivity. The British didn't interfere in Afghan politics or foreign affairs, and the Afghans kept the Russians out. Win-win. But in 1863, Dost Muhammad died, and this kicked off the inevitable ultra-violent roadshow that was an Afghan succession crisis. Dost's chosen heir was Sher Ali Khan, who immediately had to wage a civil war to fight off his brothers Muhammad Afzal, Muhammad Azam, Muhammad Amin, and Muhammad Sharif. You'll notice this starts to get real confusing name-wise. This is what all Islamic historians have to put up with, guys, so say a little prayer for them. Sher Ali Khan won the civil war in 1868 and secured the throne of Amir of Afghanistan, but there were a couple of caveats. First, his own kids, Yaqub Khan and Ayub Khan, both of whom were pretty ambitious, but both of whom were important today too. Yaqub was so ambitious, but also not very bright and kind of a dullard. His dad had him locked in prison to prevent him from basically doing anything stupid. Yaqub was just not, 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 not the sharpest knife in the drawer here. Ayub Khan, who was clever and ambitious, took charge in Herat in western Afghanistan and built his power base up there, but he didn't directly challenge his dad. The other loose end was Sher Ali's nephew, Abdurrahman Khan. Abdurrahman was a skilled general and very popular with the Afghan people, but when his side lost the civil war, Abdurrahman fled north, into Russian territory. He would remain there in exile for the next 15 years, posing an implicit threat to Sher Ali's rule. So these are your four major Afghan leaders for the rest of this uh, episode. Sher Ali Khan, currently on the throne. His son, Yaqub Khan, in prison. His other son, Ayub Khan, out in western Afghanistan building up his power base. His nephew, Abdurrahman, in exile in Russian territory. Those are your four. They're all going to come back. The British had watched the Afghan Civil War with mild interest, not supporting either side. Huh, interesting. Hmm. Then they went back to Sher Ali when he won and said, Congratulations, well done. Let's keep the same deal we had with your dad. If you're cool, we're cool. We're all cool. And Sher Ali said, Great, sounds awesome. Done. So the status quo survived the change in Afghan leadership. The British had no reason to fear a Russian invasion, no reason to upset the policy of masterly inactivity, unless something happened to change that. Turned out the Russians would change that. We know full well that Britain and Russia were not friends for most of the 19th century. They had just spent the 1850s blasting each other to pieces in the Crimean War, a conflict Russia lost and lost badly. But that just meant Russian attention switched away from Europe to their other frontiers. By the late 1850s, early 1860s, they had just finished up that final annexation of the Caucasus, and they needed a new imperial project. Idle hands, devil's workshop, I guess. And this new project was Central Asia, the new Russian frontier. Starting in 1865, Russian armies began to launch great expeditions to conquer the caravan cities of Central Asia. This whole campaign is an episode on its own, by the way. Russia's new frontier marched south under the leadership of the brilliant General Konstantin von Kaufmann. This was full-bore European imperialism, just as much as anything in Africa or Southeast Asia, propelled by new railroads and telegraphs and repeating rifles. 
the Islamic kingdoms of Bukhara, Kiva, and Kokand, the modern-day Stan countries, you know, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, etc., were all conquered. By the late 1870s, the Russian frontier had assumed basically the frontier the Soviet Union would have, on the Amu Darya River, aka the northern border of Afghanistan. The Russian conquest of Central Asia stoked all those old British fears of the Russian menace. In 1865, the Tsar's armies had been a thousand miles from India. In 1875, they had halved that distance. They were 400 miles away. One thing was for certain, the great game was back on. British and Russian agents once again trekked across Central Asia in Her Majesty's or the Tsar's secret service. Russophobia in Britain had not been this high since the Crimean War. Once again, just like before the Crimean War, a bunch of novels are being written, a bunch of Newspaper articles screaming about the Russian menace. So it needs to be asked, how high was the Russian threat to India? In all honesty, not very high, mainly because of the iron hand of logistics. Most of the armies Russia used to conquer these cities were very small by Russian standards. The city of Tashkent in 1865 was conquered by a force of a thousand men. Russia never really stood a chance of projecting a large army across such a long distance in such arid conditions. But that didn't mean they didn't talk about it or think about it. General Kaufman even had a contingency plan that involved a small army moving down the Khyber Pass in the event of war with Britain. Though how it was supposed to get through a famously not-friendly Afghanistan was anyone's best guess. But still, fear, insecurity, and Russian expansion turned British eyes to their frontier. Mainly to Afghanistan, which was now the only thing that separated the Russian border and the British border. The only buffer zone between the Russian menace and the crown jewel of the empire. Where Sher Ali's still very decentralized government no longer seemed like the shield it had once been. So the British changed their Afghanistan policy. Instead of masterly inactivity, they would try something new, or actually pretty old, called the Forward Policy, a much more aggressive response to the Russian menace. You can link this to something like uh, containment in the Cold War era. We have to stop them from expanding or they're going to take everything. The Forward Policy dictated that the British needed more control over Afghanistan. The status quo was no longer good enough. Once again, just like before the First War, the fear of a Russian invasion of India was what drove the British towards Afghanistan. The new Viceroy of India in the 1870s was Lord Lytton, who happened to be a big fan of the forward policy. Lytton insisted that the first step to securing India was to establish a British envoy, an embassy essentially, in the Afghan capital of Kabul, partially to keep an eye on the Russians and partially to keep an eye on the Afghans. So in 1874, Lord Lytton officially sent an official request to Sher Ali that he accept a British envoy in his capital. But Sher Ali said no, for three major reasons. First, British agents in Kabul would imply that Afghanistan was a British puppet, and British puppets didn't tend to survive very long in Afghanistan. Second, a British mission would leave Sher Ali unable to refuse a Russian mission if they sent one, because fair's fair, and he really didn't want a Russian mission. And third, Sher Ali could not guarantee the envoy's physical safety. Hint, hint. Sher Ali said that his people were firmly fixed in their minds and deeply rooted in their hearts that if Englishmen or other Europeans once set foot in the country, it will sooner or later pass out of their hands. The Afghan stance was basically if they gave the British an inch, the British would take a mile, 
which, given the history of British imperialism, was pretty spot on. Oh, an embassy. That's how it always starts. As far as most Afghans were concerned, any Englishman in their country was dead on arrival after the first war, which they all remembered. Sher Ali was like, guys, I'm not going to kill your agents. They don't have anything to fear from me. But it's not me you have to worry about. So that's a negative ghost writer. No British envoys. British officers in Afghanistan will make me look like a British puppet. Make me a target for the Russians. Oh, and there's a strong chance they'll end up dead, and you're going to blame me for it. So no thank you, good day, sir. The British were prepared to let this slide. But in 1877, a new war between Russia and the Ottoman Empire brought Europe to the brink of war once again. It might have been Crimea Part Two, but it was averted. And when this war started, General Kaufman up in Central Asia decided to make a contingency plan for war with Britain, just in case. So he dispatched a mission of 250 Russian officers into Afghanistan to try and persuade the Amir to align with Russia. Unlike Lord Lytton, who was like, hey, can I send a British mission? Uh, General Kaufman didn't even ask. He just said, hey, they're crossing the border, go. And Sher Ali was furious. He had just spent years telling the British they couldn't send anyone. And here the Russians were just rolling up to his palace without so much as a question mark. Even if all the Russians did was ask to use the bathroom once they got there, the British would be furious. He sent message after message telling the Russians that, hey, get the heck out. No one invited you, but it didn't work. On July 22nd, 1878, the Russians arrived in Kabul. Sher Ali had played a delicate balancing act between Britain and Russia for his entire reign, even as British diplomacy became more demanding and Russian armies inched closer to his borders. But the Russian mission blew this whole balancing act apart. They proposed, hint, quote, quotations, they proposed a treaty of friendship, saying that if he didn't sign, they would, tr they would support his nephew, Abdurrahman, for the throne instead. Abdurrahman, the one who's sitting up in exile in Russian territory. Sher Ali didn't have much choice. After all, his hold on the throne was still fragile, and the Russian army was right on his doorstep. But the treaty also promised 30,000 Russian troops if anyone else, read the British, threatened Afghan sovereignty. Sher Ali signed the treaty under duress, and the Russians left on August 24th. Lord Lytton was outraged. What, you'll accept? We've been asking you for a mission for years and you kept saying no, but then the Russian mission just walks in? No. Lord Lytton demanded that Sher Ali Khan accept a British mission in Kabul. When Sher Ali's responses were ambivalent, at least partially because of the recent death of his favorite son and he was in mourning, Lytton sent a mission anyway. On September 3rd, 1878, Sir Neville Chamberlain, not the guy from the 1930s who appeased Hitler, not the same guy, approached the Khyber Pass with a British delegation, including the senior British political officer and diplomat, Major Louis Cavagnari. But the Afghan border guards refused to allow the British representatives into Afghanistan. Chamberlain immediately wrote to Lord Lytton that, The first act has been played out, and I do not think that any impartial looker-on can say any other course has been left open to us, consistent with dignity, than to openly break with the Amir. So yeah, open break with the Amir. Things are starting to get serious. Why did the British make such a big deal out of this? Why was this the hill they chose to die on? A lot of it was that feeling of insecurity, of having a dubious neighbor who might decide to just let a Russian army march into India, and you gotta have a guy up there keeping an eye on him. Central flaw in the logic that we have to invade Afghanistan to keep the Russians out was that the Afghans didn't really want the Russians there either. 
But a lot of it was also that Britain wanted a rematch. They had been thumped the last time they messed with Afghanistan, but the 1870s was an age of hyper-imperialism and jingoism, of rampant patriotism, so maybe it was time for vengeance. Lord Lytton wanted to go to war now, but he was persuaded to send an ultimatum as a last resort. Lytton issued the ultimatum October 31st, but he demanded that Sher Ali respond by November 20th. Not nearly enough time for most people to make up their minds, let alone a grieving father. Lytton had pretty much already decided on war no matter what. He was fast-forwarding the whole diplomacy phase of the thing to get right to the fun part. The Afghans needed to be taught a lesson. That was all. That was it. That maybe it was the British who would learn the lesson never seemed to cross his mind. Sher Ali received the ultimatum, which demanded that he, one, accept a permanent British diplomatic mission in Kabul, two, allow permanent British military missions in other Afghan cities, and three, make no treaty with another power without British approval. Now this ultimatum was pretty obviously unacceptable. Sher Ali knew it. He knew the alternative was a British invasion, which the Afghan army was not really ready for. But Sher Ali's main issue wasn't the British. It was his people. The Afghans had never forgiven or forgotten the first war against the infidel foreigners, when their country had been invaded, their homes ransacked, their fathers and brothers killed, and their traditions and religion insulted. If Sher Ali failed to stand up to the British, he would be risking the wrath of his people. This was not a dispute that could be settled between British diplomats and Afghan kings without taking the Afghans themselves into consideration. The British, and later the Soviets and later the Americans, constantly failed to understand this aspect of Afghan political culture. Just because the rulers, just because the elites made a deal, didn't mean the people would buy into or accept it. James, you say, aren't the British making all the same mistakes from the first war? Letting anti-Russian paranoia cloud their judgment, choosing a risky war when diplomacy is still definitely an option, blatant overconfidence. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. History not repeating, but rhyming. So why did the British think this would end up any differently? Well, we've, we messed up the first time, sure. But that had been almost 40 years ago. And the British army was much stronger now. And they were doing things smarter. They weren't trying to occupy the country so much as they were just trying to enforce some demands. This would be simple. In and out. 20 minute adventure. But if the British thought that their second excursion into the graveyard of empires would be easy? Well, wars are very easy to start, but not always so easy to stop. Maybe they should have remembered the warning an old Afghan tribal chief had given the first British army to enter Afghanistan. You have gotten an army into Afghanistan, but how are you going to get it out again? Sher Ali's message agreeing to some, but not all of the demands arrived too late. When the ultimatum expired on November 21st, 1878, the British army marched into the Khyber Pass. The Second Anglo-Afghan War had begun. Queen Victoria's soldiers were headed back into the graveyard of empires.
So it's 1878, and the Second Anglo-Afghan War is on. But what's going on in the rest of the world? When is this exactly? Well, let's see. Victoria is still Queen of England in the 39th year of her reign, no less. Britain is about to fight another dumb imperial war this year, way off in Africa against the Zulu. Thomas Edison patents the phonograph this year and the light bulb next year. Leo Tolstoy publishes his great novel, Anna Karenina. Typewriters, telephones, and early stop-motion photography are the newest and coolest things. Hope all that helps. The British army that marched into Afghanistan in November 1878 was not the same army from the First War. For one thing, the Redcoats were finally gone, replaced by khaki uniforms, and they now wore white pith helmets, the classic mimetic symbol of colonialist rule. The old flintlock muskets were replaced by the single-shot breech-loading Martini Henry rifle, which fired a big honkin' .577 caliber slug at an effective range of 400 meters. And this was the post-Cardwell reform British Army. Not amazingly perfect, but no more purchase of officers' commissions, no more flogging, better training. But once again, only part of the army was actually British-British. The majority were still Indian troops fighting under British officers. But this was no longer the East India Company's army. After the near disaster of 1857, the mutiny-slash-war-slash-conflict, the East India Company had been replaced with a colonial government known as the British Raj, and the Raj's Indian army was a more professional fighting force. But the British still didn't quite trust their Indian soldiers, not after the mutiny. So the ratio of British to Indian units was increased, and artillery units were all 100% British. And since this was the 19th century, the golden age of weapons-grade racism, the British had a theory where certain people were naturally, by blood, genetically better fighters than others. These were the so-called martial races, including the Sikhs, the Gurkhas, the Scottish Highlanders, and the Pashtuns. So the British did have some Pashtuns within the ranks of their regiments, which would turn out to be an interesting choice. There would also be no long trains of camp followers. These were gone. After the Crimean War, the British got rid army got rid of most of their camp follower trains. And the post-Crimean War reforms had improved the state of supply services, medicine, and especially soldiers' morale. The soldiers would still suffer from sickness and disease throughout the war. But still, military history marches on. The British assembled 30,000 men for the invasion of Afghanistan split up into three forces. Three forces. In the north, General Samuel Brown's 10,000 men would attack the Khyber Pass. In the south, General Donald Stewart's 13,000 men would occupy Kandahar. And in the middle, the 6,500 men of the Kurram Valley Field Force would attack through the narrow Kurram Valley towards Kabul. Its commander was the 46-year-old Major General Frederick Slay Roberts. To most British historians, Frederick Roberts is the protagonist of the Second Anglo-Afghan War. I saw one chapter that just described it as Roberts' war, which isn't quite the whole story, obviously. Born in 1832, the son of a British Indian Army officer, Frederick Roberts was a tiny dude with big whiskers, bow-legged, red-faced little firecracker of a man. As a young lieutenant in the 1857 mutiny, he had been shot off his horse, causing his soldiers to yell, We plucky bobs is done for! 
But Bob's, as he was known, was not done for. He was awarded the Victoria Cross for his courage and never stopped being admired by his men for his attention to their needs and for just being a darn good general who kept them alive. He was a soldier's soldier. But the Afghans had not been slacking. They were not just a tribal levy, just not mobs of tribesmen anymore. Dost Muhammad and Sher Ali had worked overtime to build a professional Afghan army. Now the quality of this army was mixed, but they had modern rifles and even modern artillery. In some battles of this war, the Afghan artillery would be superior to the British guns. Goes to show, you get better, but so does your opposition. The Second Anglo-Afghan War began on November 21st, 1878, when all three British forces crossed the border into Afghanistan. The first shots were fired five miles up the Khyber Pass, where General Brown's army tried to outflank the Ali Masjid Fortress. After a long artillery duel, the Afghans evacuated the fortress with barely a fight. As battles go, it was pretty pathetic, with only 16 British dead and 300 Afghan prisoners. Brown's army occupied the Ali Masjid and marched up the Khyber Pass. In the south, General Stewart's Kandahar field force occupied its namesake city with barely a shot fired. The British were like, hell yeah, this is easy. Hmm, yeah, maybe a little too easy, right? Only General Roberts and his Kurram Valley field force encountered any real resistance. Bobbs marched his column of British regulars, Punjabi frontier troops, Bengal cavalry, and Royal Horse artillery into the thin defiles of the cold, barren Afghan mountains. On November 28th, they approached a wooded ridgeline called the Paiwar Kotal. It was a strong position, highly elevated with few avenues of approach, occupied by 5,000 Afghan regulars under the command of Karim Khan. And these guys were ready to fight. Roberts rested his force while he looked for a way around the Afghan position. His scouts found a difficult but feasible route that would turn the enemy's right flank. Roberts decided to leave part of his force as a diversion while he took 2,250 men on the long march around. The British left on the night of December 1st, ascending the snow-covered track around the Paiwar Kotal. Roberts led a crazy mix of units, the 5th Gurkhas, two Punjabi regiments, and some artillery, including four guns mounted on the backs of elephants. Hey look, big tanky boys making an appearance again. The only British regiment besides the artillery were the kilted 72nd Highlanders. I told you guys too, Britain is at war, Scottish Highlanders are always involved. We're getting some cameos here, it's almost like a Marvel movie up in here. Roberts' men crunched over the icy barren mountains in the darkness. The movement was almost given away by a couple of native Pashtuns in the Punjabi border regiment, who fired their guns to try and alert their kinsmen to the surprise attack. Roberts had to send these units back to the rear before they gave away the whole plan. Finally, in the early hours of December 2nd, the flanking column was in position. The Highlanders and Gurkhas launched a sudden bayonet charge up the rocky slope, catching the Afghans by surprise. Roberts' men rolled up the Afghan flank, the elephant-mounted guns firing into their camp and sending horses and mules fleeing. At the same time, the diversion force in the valley launched its own attack. The Afghans fled, leaving 18 artillery pieces and most of their baggage. Roberts' victory at the Battle of the Paiwar Kotal was achieved at the cost of only 20 dead. His small force had defeated a larger enemy in a stronger position, and the road to Kabul was now open. When Queen Victoria heard the news of the small but brilliant victory, she was elated. 
I have received the news of the decisive victory of General Roberts and the splendid behavior of my brave soldiers with pride and satisfaction. Pray, inquire after the wounded in my name. And Frederick Roberts became Sir Frederick Roberts, receiving a knighthood for his victory, and his meteoric rise had begun. So, all three British forces achieved their initial objectives, but soon they were having all sorts of other problems. First off, cholera, again, hit the British invaders pretty hard, and rates of sickness and death rose sharply without any shots being fired. But then there were shots being fired, because second, the Afghan tribes were launching aggressive ambushes against any British force they saw. As 1878 turned into 1879, the snow-covered mountains swarmed with tribesmen. So look, you know, we're looking at it from the British side, you know, fighting off the Afghans. But look at it from their side. How many of these young men had been raised on stories of the first British invasion, of the infidel who had come to take away their rights and freedoms and land, to make them into the slaves of a faraway queen? How many young Pashtun, Tajik, Nuristani men felt the pressure from their villages to prove their courage and defend their homeland? They fought for the things they had always fought for, their village, their valley, their community, their usually unique brand of Islam. Maybe even to impress a girl. That's probably pretty universal, you know. You see Habiba over there, she's looking mighty cute, and she's like, you better go fight, boy. And you're like, yes, ma'am, and you go. But the mutual struggle in the first war had not only given them a sense of unity, that there was such a thing as a broader Afghanistan, but confidence. We beat them before, we can beat them again. The guerrilla fight in the mountains was just as brutal as the British remembered. No quarter was given, and mutilations were common on both sides. The Afghans had an uncanny knack for vanishing into the hills whenever the fight turned against them, only to strike with ferocity when there was a small force on its own. But while all this was happening, while the Afghan people were fighting, while the British were realizing what a hornet's nest they'd kicked, the Afghan leaders folded. Sher Ali Khan had decided that it was time to bug out. He fled Kabul on December 31st, 1878, after news reached him of Roberts' storming of the Paiwar Kotal, and he made his way north towards the Russian border. He sent messages to General Kaufman saying, Hey, remember that deal we made? Will you promise 30,000 Russian soldiers to protect me if anyone invaded? Well, someone's invaded. And General Kaufman basically said, Oh, you thought I was serious? <laughs> oh boy, sucks dude. Uh, if I were you, I'd make peace with the British. Sher Ali demanded to travel to St. Petersburg and speak to the Tsar personally, but the Russian border guards refused to let him cross the Amudarya, the northern border of Afghanistan between Russia and Afghan territory. Defeated in body and soul, the emir retreated to the ancient city of Balkh. Sher Ali's health collapsed, and he died on February 21st, 1879. So with him dead, the task of making peace fell to his weak-willed son, the one he had thrown in prison, Yakub Khan. Yakub was never meant to rule and really shouldn't have. Roberts would later describe him. I cannot say that I was favorably impressed by his appearance. He was an insignificant-looking man, about 32 years of age, with a receding forehead, a conical-shaped head, and no chin to speak of, and he gave me the idea of being entirely wanting in that force of character, without which no one could hope to govern or hold in check the warlike and turbulent people of Afghanistan. But the British now had to decide what to do next. 
Their armies were bogged down in the mountains, suffering from disease and weather, at the end of long, vulnerable supply lines and facing constant guerrilla resistance. Lytton decided that the time was ripe to make peace. And since Yakub Khan had all the backbone of an egg roll, they'd probably get a pretty good deal. In spring 1879, Yakub Khan met with the British at the village of Gandamak, the site of the 44th Foot's famous last stand in 1842. Negotiating for the British was Major Sir Louis Cavagnari, the British political officer assigned to Afghanistan. Cavagnari was one of those flamboyant, swashbuckling great game adventurers that filled British pulp fiction of the day. His father had been one of Napoleon's generals, and he already had a distinguished reputation as a frontier officer. He was a pretty boilerplate British romantic imperialist hero of the 19th century. Y'all probably shouldn't get too attached to this guy. The Treaty of Gandamak was signed on May 26, 1879, supposedly bringing an end to the Second Anglo-Afghan War. The terms were harsh. Afghanistan ceded several border territories, including the entrance to the Khyber Pass. Afghan foreign policy would be under the control of Great Britain. And finally, British agents would be stationed in Afghanistan, including that much-coveted envoy at Kabul. And that envoy would be Sir Louis Cavagnari. In return, the British would recognize Yakub Khan as the emir, give him subsidies, and protect him from outside invasion, read Russia. The treaty was humiliating, representing British domination and the loss of Afghan sovereignty. The reason it was this bad was probably because Yakub Khan was such a weenie. Uh, any competent emir probably would have raised a better resistance than he did. The treaty was celebrated in Britain as a great victory, revenge for the ghosts of 1841 and 1842. But other people, including General Roberts, were worried. This had just been too easy. And that's the problem with Afghanistan, ain't it? The initial invasion always seems easy. Getting out is the hard part. Roberts was most concerned about his friend Cavagnari, probably thinking of the fate of the last two British agents in Kabul, Alexander Burns and William McNaughton. After all, McNaughton's limbless torso ended up hanging from a hook in the marketplace like a cheap Christmas ornament. That's something people tend to remember. Roberts had an impending sense of doom. My heart sank as I wished Cavagnari goodbye. When we had proceeded a few yards in our different directions, we both turned back, retraced our steps, shook hands once more, and parted forever. With peace settled and the British armies withdrawing, Cavagnari and his 75-man escort made the 60-mile journey to Kabul. They arrived on July 24, 1879, the first official British visitors since the disaster of 1842. Cavagnari rode on the back of an elephant, greeted by a brass band and a warm welcome from the Amir. Their quarters, the British Residency, were a set of flat roof buildings within Yakub's Bala Hissar fortress. Cavagnari and his men settled in, completely satisfied of their safety. A handful of British agents, the living proof of the hated foreigner, all alone in Kabul. What could go wrong? The British had made the mistake every would-be conqueror of Afghanistan makes, mistaking the mood of the Kabul elites for the mood of the people. Soviets, Americans, all did this. Just because the emir had signed a treaty didn't mean his people would comply. For a few weeks, all seemed well. It seemed calm. It seemed like everything was going fine. 
Then on September 3rd, 1879, three regiments of Afghan infantry arrived in the city from Herat. They hadn't been paid in months, the coffers were empty, and the Amir refused to see them. Then someone pointed out that, hey, the Amir is a British puppet, and everyone knows the British have money. So the crowd of Afghan soldiers rolled on up to the British residency to demand their wages. I mean, Cavignari was like, bro, I don't have enough money to pay you guys, it's not my job. But then one nervous British sentry fired a shot, and it was game on. The 2,000 Afghan soldiers ran back to their barracks and grabbed their weapons. They were soon joined by an enormous mob pouring in from the streets of Kabul. This was just the tinder, the spark that set everything aflame. Just like in November 1841, everything had been quiet, until it suddenly wasn't. The British prepared to defend themselves, while Cavagnari sent a message to Yakub Khan asking for help. But when Yakub sent messengers to bring the soldiers under control and tell the people to go home, the Afghans threw rocks and insulted them and drove them off. For a lot of Afghans, by bowing to the English invaders, Yakub's government had lost its legitimacy. If he wouldn't fight for Afghanistan, they would. The tiny British mission never stood a chance. The Afghans surrounded and rained artillery and rifle fire on the embassy. Cavagnari himself was killed very early, hit in the head with a musket ball as he led a counterattack. For the next five hours, the fight was led by Lieutenant Walter Hamilton, a Victoria Cross recipient. They fought like lunatics, but the outcome was never in doubt. Every British and Indian soldier, mostly Indians, in the residency was cut down, but they took as many as 600 Afghans with them. Only a few who had been outside the residency and escaped lived to tell the story. The last stand of the British residency in Kabul was an example of that good old British phenomenon. Stunning courage and a stunning last stand made necessary by a series of equally stunning bad decisions. News of the massacre reached British India on September 5th, 1879. Yakub Khan immediately sent a message to Lord Lytton expressing regret for the unfortunate event and claiming that he would punish those responsible. I'll get them, don't worry. Don't you don't have to come over here. You don't have to come over here. But the Viceroy of India was not having this for a second. The murder of Cavagnari and his men had to be answered, and he had just the man to do it. Frederick Roberts was shaken awake by his wife on the morning of September 5th with bad news about his friend Cavagnari and new orders. The war was officially back on. You know, we had peace, scratch that, war's back on, let's go. He was to gather an army and march on Kabul as soon as possible. The massacre of the residency had kicked off phase two of the Second Anglo-Afghan War. And in retrospect, the British did not think this through. Lytton and Roberts were both fueled by a desire for vengeance and retribution. Fair enough, but those are not a great basis for a strategy. What exactly were they trying to do? What was the long-term plan? Remove Yakub Khan? Annex Afghanistan? Just go fight some people? take some pictures, never really explained. The second British invasion was a knee-jerk reaction without any foresight, and it would come back to bite them. Roberts and his 7,500-man Kabul Field Force set out on September 30th, 1879, determined to capture the Afghan capital and avenge Cavagnari's death. But they had barely gotten into Afghanistan when Roberts received an unexpected guest, Yakub Khan himself, fleeing from the wrath of his own people. Neither the British nor the Afghans had any respect for the spineless sovereign. 
Within a few days, he abdicated and went into exile in India, moaning, I would rather be a grass cutter in India than the ruler of Afghanistan. I, I, I kind of said he was a weenie, and I'm, I think I'm still right. But, you know, he might have been the smartest one in this story so far. If everyone's gunning for you when you're on top in Afghanistan, maybe the best move is to just not be on top or try to be on top at all. Roberts advanced on Kabul with his army, which included some new toys. Bob's had a pair of brand new Gatling guns, a hand-cranked machine gun that in theory, in theory, would chew enemy formations into pieces. But as the British would discover, they were not all they were cracked up to be. Roberts' army on the way to Kabul ran into a large Afghan army, occupying a ridge near Charasib, 12 miles south of the capital. This was on October 6th, 1879. The Afghan regulars outnumbered the single brigade Roberts had on hand, and moved to attack and destroy his small army. But this was Bob's. Roberts reacted first. He repeated the tactic he'd used at the Piwar Kotal, fainting left while flanking to the right. One of the soldiers in the flanking column was Major Reginald Mitford of the 92nd Highlanders. The dark green kilts went up the steep rocky hillside at a fine rate, though one would occasionally drop and roll several feet down the slope, showing that the rattling fire kept up by the enemy was not all show. Both sides took advantage of every atom of cover, but still the kilts pressed on and up. Soon joined by Gurkhas and Punjabis, the Highlanders once again pierced the Afghan line. The enemy gave way, pursued by cavalry, and the Battle of Chara Saib was won. The Gatling guns had done very little, only firing 150 rounds, and one of them jammed up so badly it couldn't be used. They probably weren't being used or maintained correctly, still being such new weapons, and people who use Gatling guns in this time period tended to place them with the artillery where their range couldn't be, they weren't at effective range. Roberts was not impressed with them, but still, the way to Kabul was open. On October 12, 1879, General Roberts led his small army into the streets of Kabul, a city of 50,000 people. Bagpipes wailed as British soldiers marched through the city where, 38 years ago, Elphinstone's army had been trapped, tricked, and then massacred. And the Afghans did not act beaten. They were sullen, defiant, glaring at the invaders as they swaggered through their capital. If looks could kill, the collective anger would have incinerated Bob's and his boys in an instant. With the capture of Kabul, the abdication of Yakub Khan, and the lack of any real successor, the British just kinda didn't know what to do now. They hadn't planned this far ahead. Lord Lytton ordered Roberts to hold on tight in Kabul as military governor, while the big brains back in India figured out their next move. Oh, by the way, Bob's, find and punish those responsible for Cavagnari's death. Bob's was very angry about the death of his friend, and he got overzealous. This was a huge mistake. He was thinking emotionally, not strategically, prioritizing vengeance over cool-headed judgment. The British turned Cobble upside down looking for anyone linked to the death of Cavagnari and his men. One of them was the mayor of Cobble, who had carried Cavagnari's head through the city like a football. Yet, yeah, doesn't take Matlock to put two and two together, he's pretty obviously guilty. But Roberts also wasn't being picky about silly things like trials or evidence. Some of the guys who rounded up, maybe even a majority, were almost certainly innocent. These men, nearly a hundred of them, 
were publicly hanged in the courtyard of the Balahisar Palace, as an enormous crowd looked on in silent fury, held back only by the ring of British troops with fixed bayonets. Then, just to hammer home the point, Roberts' engineers blew up the Balahisar. The royal residence of Afghanistan was no more. Back in Britain, Roberts was the subject of intense criticism for his lawless acts in Kabul, and yet it was an enormous error of judgment. But when he had committed the acts, he had been following orders from Lord Lytton. Part of that order said, Every Afghan brought to death I shall regard as one scoundrel the less in a nest of scoundrelism. Anyone found in arms should be killed on the spot like vermin. It is not justice in the ordinary sense, but retribution that you have to administer on reaching Kabul. Your object should be to strike terror, and strike it quickly and deeply. Yep, that's going to calm them down. Hey Russians, hey Americans, did killing more Afghans calm the country down, or did it just make them mad? Roberts's hangings had kicked the hornet's nest. As the British army settled into winter quarters outside Kabul, the tribes were descending on the city from all directions. It was going to be a long winter. An uprising that came out of nowhere, the murder of a British political agent by a mob, and now a small army stuck in a camp outside Kabul in the midst of a growing rebellion as winter approached. All seemed very familiar to the British in Afghanistan. Maybe history doesn't repeat itself, but in the winter of 1879, it was rhyming very well. Because the British were now on top in Afghanistan, and everyone in the country would be gunning for them. By October 1879, the British had run out of ideas. They were learning that in Afghanistan, their authority only extended as far as the range of their rifles. They had reoccupied Kandahar and Jalalabad, and General Roberts was camped outside Kabul, but they controlled nothing beyond that. Yakub Khan's abdication meant that there was no Afghan government to negotiate peace with, even if they wanted to. The Treaty of Gandamak, which had seemed to end the war, only ended up sucking the British in deeper. Easy to get in, not so easy to get out. An Afghan revenge was on its way. General Roberts's poorly justified retributions poured gasoline on the campfire of Afghan anger. They remembered 35 years ago, the British invading their country, pissing on their traditions and customs, calling the way they lived for hundreds of years barbaric and crude, harassing their women, hanging innocent men. They were out for blood, a massive resistance movement began to take shape in the mountains. A prominent mullah, the Mushki Alam, declared a jihad. Tribal levies and warriors poured out, led by the Warduk chief, Muhammad John. Anti-British feeling was off the charts. Local farmers donated food, old men donated old muskets, and Yakub Khan's mother even donated her jewelry. For the Afghans, it was supposed to be a repeat of the first war, when the Gilzai Pashtuns and the Kohistani Tajiks had put aside old differences to unite against the invader. 
Men who remembered their fathers and grandfathers' stories of 1842 came out with their old rifles, like the Minutemen coming out in 1775. Soon a force of around 50,000 men was gathering, determined to overwhelm the 7,000 of Roberts' Kabul field force. Roberts had based his force within the Sherpur cantonment, a mile northeast of Kabul. This cantonment had originally been built for the Afghan army. It was about 4.5 miles in perimeter, and it wasn't in great shape. Roberts got to work repairing the walls and fortifying the cantonment with barbed wire and obstacles, while he sent two columns out to try and find and defeat the enemy forces. The idea was to break up the Afghan resistance before it could get out of control, but it was already way too late for that. These columns ran smack into a huge Afghan force and got cut to pieces. The British lost 81 killed and 213 wounded in these skirmishes, so far their largest loss of a single action, and Roberts concentrated his army inside the cantonment, huddled up inside. His telegraph lines were cut, reinforcements were far away, and the Kabul field force was all alone out here. It seemed like history was repeating itself. Once again, a British army was trapped in a makeshift cantonment near Kabul. Once again, winter was here and snow covered the landscape. Once again, the Afghans were highly motivated and well-led. Muhammad John, who was feeling pretty confident, offered Robert safe passage through the Khyber Pass if he laid down his arms and left Afghanistan. It seemed like 1842 all over again. But this was not 1842. The Kabul field force, despite being only half the size, was not the army of the Indus. And Fred Roberts was not William Elphinstone. Roberts said, no, 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 we've seen this movie before. Let me guess, you want us to go up the Cord Kabul Pass, right? You can promise our safety, right? <laughs> you almost got me. No, 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 we're not doing any of that. You want us, come get us. The Afghans obliged him. On December 22, 1879, Roberts received an intelligence report that the Afghans were planning an all-out assault the next day. Roberts had his men tighten their defenses and sleep by their weapons, ready for whatever came their way. And just before dawn on December 23rd, it happened. A signal fire ignited by the Mushki Alam suddenly bloomed on the heights. Then came a sudden eruption of rifle fire, cannon blasts, and screaming from Afghan warriors. They surged across the open, snow-covered landscape, swords and guns in hand, carrying ladders to scale the walls. One war correspondent remembered the scene. One ceaseless roll of musketry broken at frequent intervals by the roar of a heavy gun. Above this rose British cheers and Sikh war cries, answering the yells of the mullahs and ghazis, screams, shrieks, and noises of every hideous description. The bullets were whistling about us, knocking up the stones, splintering the abatis, and tearing through the empty tents. And you may form a very inadequate idea of the scene on which the peaceful stars looked down. The British and Indian soldiers waited until the Afghans were within 80 yards before opening fire, smoke and flames slicing into the darkness. Hundreds of Afghans fell, but they kept coming in a desperate attempt to close with the defenders. The British and Indian troops drove back wave after wave. As the sun came up, bodies littered the white landscape around the cantonment. When the Afghan attacks finally faltered at about noon that day, Roberts unleashed the cavalry, and chased, which chased the fleeing Afghans down as they raced for cover. When the sun rose on Christmas Eve, December 24th, the hills in the city were all deserted. The Kabul field force had survived. 
history had not repeated itself, 1842 had not occurred again. The Battle of the Sherpore Cantonment cost the British only 23 dead, compared to possibly as many as 3,000 Afghans. The lopsided casualty rate is mainly due to the tactics. Charging a disciplined enemy with long-range rifles behind a fortified wall is not a great idea, turns out. But the battle showed something else, that the Afghans weren't going to quit. Their resistance was continuing and fierce. Robertson, the empire he represented, had a question to answer. What now? As 1879 turned into 1880, the Afghans were clearly not ready to give up. That spring, spring of 1880, General Stewart marched north from Kandahar to reinforce Roberts at Kabul. His forces were harassed and raided the entire way, He'd, and then he defeated Mohammed John's followers at Ahmed Kel on April 19, 1880. This is a small, sharp little battle. The Afghan attacks were so determined that General Stewart had to at one point draw his sword to personally defend himself. Stewart's troops reached Kabul a few days later, and Stewart took over command from Roberts, who was upset about this. But both men were like, dude, dude, we can't go on like this. Even if the Afghans aren't wiping us out, we're fighting for our lives every day out here. There's no way to secure anything. One India administrator, Lord Hardington, summed it up. As the result of two successful campaigns, the employment of an enormous force, and the expenditure of large sums of money, all that has yet been accomplished has been the disintegration of that state which it was desired to see strong, friendly, and independent, in a condition of anarchy throughout the remainder of the country. Basically, look at everything we've done and what do we have to show for it? We shattered Afghanistan. There's no political settlement. What now? There was, briefly, very briefly, some talk of annexing Afghanistan or even dividing the country up into small independent states and a part the British would control. But every British officer on the ground was, set, was like, are you serious? We have no control over anything outside the range of our guns. Every time we march anywhere, we get swamped. We beat them, they come back tomorrow. We kill them, two more take their place. We capture a village, leave the village, the village is in arms the next day. We cannot hold Afghanistan. But they couldn't just leave, not without some kind of solution to the power vacuum they had created. Afghanistan was impossible to annex, but impossible to ignore. And like magic, a solution presented itself. Maybe not, maybe not their favorite solution. After almost 15 years in exile, Abdurrahman, Sher Ali's nephew, had come riding across the Amu Darya in January 1880, crossing from Russian into Afghan territory. He rallied the northern tribes behind him and headed towards Kabul, but he wasn't looking for a fight, at least not at first. He kept sending diplomats to make contact with the main tribes around the city, but also to the British. Abdurrahman had always been popular, and he seemed to have the allegiance of most of the tribes. This guy might be our solution. There was just one teensy problem. Abdurrahman was reported to be in a Russian uniform, with a bag of Russian gold, with his men armed with Russian rifles. If it walks like a Russian minion, and it talks like a Russian minion... But the British were out of options. Political opposition to the war back home was growing. It was costing a huge amount of money, and Roberts and Stewart just had nowhere near enough men to even try to control the Kabul area, let alone the rest of Afghanistan. Finally, there had been a change in government back in London. The forward policy was now officially out of favor. The new government was like, this whole thing was a mistake. 
They sent orders to India, who sent orders to the generals. Look, we are not playing this game anymore. This place can go screw itself. Find a king, set him up, get out. So the British sent a messenger to make contact with Abdurrahman Khan. He was friendly, but cautious. The first British proposal was that he would be king of the Kabul area, and they would occupy certain other parts of the country like Kandahar. You can get a little kingdom as a treat. Abdurrahman said, yeah, that's not going to work for me. I'm going to need the whole kingdom. Take it or leave it. It was a sign of how desperate the British were that they ended up going with the guy wearing the I Heart Russia hat. But they needed a king, and buddy, he was the only game in town. So the British agreed to Abdurrahman's terms. They would withdraw their forces, would not try to station another envoy in Kabul, and would not interfere in Afghan affairs. In return, Abdurrahman would have diplomatic relations with nobody but Britain, and the British would keep the territory they had taken in the Treaty of Gandamak. Oh, and Abdurrahman, please don't let any Russians into the country. Abdurrahman, you know, in the Russian uniform with the Russian guns and the Russian money. That's wishful thinking, I suppose. But Abdurrahman found these terms acceptable. On July 22nd, General Stewart met with Abdurrahman and the tribal leaders who formally recognized the dude in the Russian uniform as Amir. So much for keeping him out, I guess. But the way the British saw it, a strong independent king, even a Russian-aligned king, was better than a limp noodle like Yakub Khan. Not a perfect solution, but a solution. All right, this is over, right? We can leave. The Second Anglo-Afghan War is over. <laughs> but it wasn't. Because even as the British were preparing to turn their backs on Kabul and leave Afghanistan for good, only a week after Abdurrahman's assumption of the throne, news arrived of disaster. Disaster at a place that would be seared into British and Afghan memory forever. My wand. So far, all the big actions of the Second Anglo-Afghan War had taken place in the Northeast, around Kabul and the Khyber Pass. Things had been a little bit quieter, but not much quieter, in the south, around Kandahar. British forces were constantly skirmishing with the tribes and driving off attacks on their outposts. General Stewart had marched north with most of the Kandahar force to reinforce Roberts in April 1880, so most of the army left. He left a garrison of around 6,000 men, along with a local governor from the Durrani dynasty, one of Sher Ali's relatives, to keep an eye on things. After all, the war was supposed to be wrapping up soon, so no need to go kicking up a fuss. But a fuss was about to be kicked up. Because in western Afghanistan, at the city of Herat, another contender for the throne had emerged. This was Ayub Khan, son of the late Sher Ali and brother of Yakub Khan. This is the last of the four main Afghan leaders we're talking about today. Finally bringing him back under the board. I told you to remember him. Maybe you didn't, but it's okay. Ayub was one of the more charismatic and skillful Afghan leaders. He had a large army at his command, including many of the regular Afghan regiments, the uniformed army that his dad had built. And with his brother's abdication, he considered himself next in line for the throne. Remember when Yaku was like, I don't want the throne anymore, and ran into India? Ayub was like, well, that means I'm king now. And to be honest, he had as much of a claim as anybody. But then the infidel scum had negotiated with his weirdo cousin, Abdurrahman, his father's mortal enemy, the Russian puppet, and made him Amir instead. They hadn't even asked Ayub if he wanted the job. Well, if the British thought they could set up a compliant, uncontested puppet, they would think again. 
Ayub Khan marched out of Herat on June 9th with an army, headed for Kandahar, to liberate Afghanistan from the rotten English and his cousin. News of Ayub's advance reached India, and they ordered the military authorities in Kandahar to send some units out to fight him, with the 6,000 men they had sent in the city. What ended up being put together was the South Afghanistan Field Force, a brigade-sized unit led by Brigadier General George Burroughs. The South Afghanistan Field Force was a mixed bag of units. There were two regiments of native Bombay infantry, the 1st and the 30th. The 1st was an excellent regiment, the 30th not so much, it was full of raw recruits. Those were both Indian regiments. Burroughs' only large British unit was the 66th Regiment of Foot, a fine, well-trained regiment with high morale and discipline. The 66th even had a mascot, a little white mongrel dog named Bobby, belonging to Lance Sergeant Peter Kelly. Besides his infantry, Burroughs had a battery of nine-pounder smoothbore guns from the Royal Horse Artillery and a mostly Indian cavalry force. All in all, just around 2,500 men with a handful of guns, plus 2,000 local, supposedly loyal Afghan troops. How does that always work out? It should have been more than enough for a random tribal levy. And that was all that anyone thought Ayub Khan would have. So Burroughs took this small brigade out to go find and defeat the Afghans. Burroughs marched out to find and fight Ayub's army in early July 1880. He had no idea how big the enemy army was, but it was just a bunch of tribesmen, right? But on July 13th, warning sign number one, the 2,000 supposedly loyal Afghans deserted, many of them going to join Ayub's army. This was a bad sign, and so were the other bad signs. Lots of Afghan patrols, deserted villages, people acting squirrely or secretive and hiding. Then after two weeks of maneuvering, maneuvering around to find Ayub, Burroughs found himself within striking distance of the Afghans near the Maiwand Pass. With no idea of exactly what he was getting himself into, with orders to confront and destroy the Afghan, quote, rebels, Burroughs decided to attack. It turned out to be a bad, 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 bad idea. Burroughs had 2,500 men. Ayub Khan had maybe 25,000. And that included not only Afghan regulars and heavy artillery, but at least 10,000 local tribesmen. Because Ayub had been spreading propaganda about liberating Afghanistan from the invaders to restore Pashtun self-respect, liberty, their homeland. And Kandahar was not only his family's stomping ground, like the base of their power and their ethnic background, but this was Pashtun home country. This was the most Pashtun concentrated area. The Pashtun tribes came out in their thousands, accompanied by their women. Far from being bystanders, as one might assume from stereotypes about Muslim women, Pashtun women almost always followed their men to battle. They were camp followers, cooking, cleaning, carrying water and ammunition, tending to the wounded. And according to Pashtun mythology, one of those women was Malala of my wand. I'll be honest with you guys right now. The story of Malala of my wand is virtually absent from English language accounts of this war because it's an Afghan story. She basically functions as like the Mali Pitcher or the Mulan of Afghanistan, a folk hero that was probably based on a real figure. There is no way of telling how much of this actually happened. A lot of this is legend. So when I tell her story, big caveat, who knows how much of this is true? But the Afghans believe it's true. 
Malala was 18 years old, and the Battle of Mai Wand would take place on what was supposed to be her wedding day, July 27, 1880. But the tides of war and the invaders' sword had come to the Helmand Valley, and her father and fiancé had both answered the call to arms. They had joined Ayub Khan's army to fight the historic enemy, who had plundered and desecrated their land in the days of their ancestors. Malala followed them to the battlefield, and she would have heard the first shots of the Battle of Mai Wand. Burroughs realized that the British were in serious trouble. When they realized just how stinking big the enemy army was, they deployed into line of battle on the open floodplains of the Helmand Valley. Burroughs probably should have fallen back to a better position, there were several more defensible positions to his rear, but he seemed confident that the Queen's soldiers could win with their superior weapons and tactics. British overconfidence and Imperial adventures name a more iconic duo. But then Ayub Khan unlimbered his artillery. To their shock, the British realized that against their small handful of smoothbore horse artillery, the Afghans had 30 breech-loading Armstrong rifled cannon. Very modern artillery, wielded by expert artillerymen, trained professionals that they had been building up for years. Modern guns fired by professional soldiers, several steps ahead of the British guns. So where the heck did the Afghans get this modern artillery? Oh, oh yeah, we sold it to them. We sold it to them back when we were allies. Uh, <laughs> Afghans turning the weapons you gave them against you. Gosh, I hope that never happens again. But Burroughs' position was even worse than it seemed. He had the 30th Bombay, the 1st Bombay, and the 66th foot in a battle line facing north. Bobby scampering and barking around the feet of the 66th, his little white dog. But running past the British flank was a long ravine that gave them cover and concealment. Ayub was not an idiot. Ayub started pushing infantry into this ravine where they could move around the British flank without exposing themselves to fire. Soon the infantry and their formations were taking fire from Afghan soldiers and tribesmen behind solid cover. The Afghans were firing everything from modern repeating rifles to ancient matchlocks. But the British held their ground in the dust and heat of the Afghan plain, giving as good as they got, pouring fire into their foes. The few obsolete British guns led by Captain J.R. Slade matched the heavier Afghan weapons shot for shot even though they were out so severely outgunned. At this point in the battle, even the massive Afghan numbers didn't seem to be enough. Though they were this, this enormous army almost encircling the British, they seemed to waver for a second. At this point, again, according to the stories, Malala of my wand stepped forward to shame the men into fighting when she saw them wavering. She removed her veil and shouted, Young love, if you do not fall in the battle of my wand, by God, someone is saving you as a symbol of shame. When one of the Afghan color bearers fell, Malala scooped up the national banner of Afghanistan and walked to the front lines, waving it, singing a landai or an Afghan patriotic hymn. With a drop of my sweetheart's blood, shed in defense of the motherland, will I put a beauty spot on my forehead, such as would put to shame the rose in the garden. Malala's show of courage and defiance and the shame she inflicted on people who were trying to run away stiffened Afghan morale and prevented them from routing. But as, even as they rallied, Malala was struck by a bullet and killed. But her brief show of courage had possibly, if the story is true, had possibly prevented the Afghans from losing the Battle of My Wand. Again, a folktale. But if it's not true, it probably should be. 
However it had happened, the tide of the battle turned. When the British guns ran out of ammunition, they had to withdraw to get more, and this allowed the Afghan guns to concentrate their fire on the 30th Bombay. Already wavering, 30th was not having its best day ever. They hesitated, seemed to shake a little bit, and the Afghans smelled blood. A few tribesmen launched a reckless attack from the ravine, soon joined by thousands of their countrymen. The rapid charge smashed into the wavering 30th Bombay, which collapsed like a broken accordion. In the dust and confusion, this enormous heat and dust surrounding the battlefield, the 1st Bombay tried to form a square and stand off the attack, but with the 30th retreat leaving their flank open, they never had a chance. They either ran or stood to be cut down by the Afghans. This left the 66th foot. They pulled Afghan fighters onto their bayonets by their beards, clubbed them to death with rocks, or shot at point-blank range. But even Bobby's barking, as brave as he was too, <laughs> couldn't drive back the assault. Burroughs ordered a cavalry charge, but after a single assault, the cavalry panicked and ran as well. The British Army collapsed. They routed, protected only by the handful of units that retained any semblance of order. Only small pieces of the 66th foot, a company of the Bombay Sappers, and Captain Slade's handful of guns fended off Ayub Khan's pursuit. The pursuit was so close and so fierce that some of Captain Slade's smoothbores were overrun and captured in the course of the fighting. But with the disorganization of the retreat, many units never managed to escape, being surrounded and cut to pieces. Among them were 56 men of the 66th foot, who managed to fence themselves up in a garden to try and stand off the pursuit. After a short time, only 11 were left standing. One of Ayub Khan's artillery colonels described the final stand of the last 11 at my wand. These men charged from the shelter of a garden and died with their faces to the enemy, fighting to the death. So fierce was their charge, and so brave their actions, no Afghan dared to approach to cut them down. So standing in the open, back to back, firing steadily, every shot counting, surrounded by thousands, these British soldiers died. It was not until the last man was shot down that the Afghans dared to advance on them. The behavior of those last eleven was the wonder of all who saw it. The Afghans were so impressed by the last stand of the Eleven that Ayub Khan had them buried with full honors, but not before confiscating the colors of the 66th foot from a dead man's hands. The Battle of My Wand, July 27, 1880, was the last time a set of British regimental colors would ever be lost in battle. The British losses for such a small force were staggering. Compared to the American defeat, Custer's last stand at Little Bighorn, which had been four years earlier, 244 soldiers were killed. But of the 2,476 British soldiers engaged at My Wand, 969 were killed and 178 wounded. 46% losses. You might say, James, that is an unusually lopsided number of dead and wounded. The wounded almost always outnumber the dead, right? Yes, usually. You're right but none of the British wounded at my wand were left alive. If the Afghan men didn't kill you on the battlefield, well, the women came after them, and the women weren't as nice. Think back to that poem I quoted at the beginning of the episode, and now we see where this comes from. When you're wounded and left on Afghanistan's plains, and the women come out to cut up what remains, just roll to your rifle and blow out your brains, and go to your god like a soldier.
The Afghans had suffered as many as 3,000 killed in the Battle of Maiwand, but they had shattered the South Afghanistan field force. The road was littered with moaning wounded, bleeding horses staggering into the desert, and soldiers crying for lack of water. And they were still pursued by the hacking, slashing Afghan cavalry. The streaming wreck of the brigade came under constant ambushes from every village they passed, and only barely managed to find shelter within the walls of Kandahar. One wounded soldier did manage to make his way home. A few survivors of the 66th foot found a little white dog, wounded, who had limped the many miles from my wand after his masters. It was Bobby. They scooped him up and reunited him with Lance Sergeant Kelly, who had also been wounded in the battle and who also survived. I feel like I had to tell you that guys that story because of the grief y'all gave me over the last dog I featured in this podcast. The Battle of Mai Wand sent shockwaves across the British Empire. It was a stunning defeat, almost as stunning as their defeat by the Zulus at Isan Luana the year before. But I mean, it shouldn't have been stunning. The British were outnumbered 10 to 1, their tactics were garbage, they were outgunned, and these weren't exactly the best British units in the world, the 30th foot was not the cream of the crop. But don't tell that to the newspapers. The disaster at Mai Wand passed into British legend. In the Sherlock Holmes novels, this was the battle where Dr. Watson was wounded during his service in Afghanistan. Poems and paintings and stories were written of this battle, especially the last stand of the Eleven. And all of this helped build the British legend of the savage, cunning Afghan, one of the most fearsome foes in their rogues gallery of imperial enemies, Queen Victoria's boogeyman. And the Afghans remembered it too, they remembered it as their great victory over the British invader. When the British returned to occupy the Maiwand area in the 2010s, the Afghans put up graffiti and shouted messages taunting them for the 1880 defeat. But all that was in the future. Right now, Ayub Khan had surrounded and besieged the remaining British forces in Kandahar. The British had been all ready to leave, and then this had happened. It sucks that they need to learn their lesson again, but you know, it is deceptively catastrophically easy to get an army into Afghanistan. And it would take brave soldiers doing a daring feat led by a great general, someone like Frederick Roberts, to get the British army out again. The news of my wand hit the British headquarters at Kabul just as they were getting ready to leave Afghanistan for good. Everything had seemed like it was over. After the first peace treaty fell apart in the wake of Cavagnari's murder, they had avoided military disaster and kind of, sort of, a little bit, restored political order. Sure, the new Afghan emir spoke Russian a little too well for their tastes, but they could leave Afghanistan knowing that order was restored. Then my wand happened. Now the British had suffered a humiliating defeat, and the army in Kandahar was under siege. The soldiers in Kabul probably sighed and started unpacking. Cancel your tickets, boys. Back to work. But the British had not changed their minds. Abdurrahman was on the throne, they had a deal, and they would stick to it. No, we are still leaving. But most of the army would now be leaving Kabul 
by way of Kandahar, and General Stewart knew exactly who should lead it. He reported, The present question is the relief of Kandahar and the defeat of Ayub. I have a fine force ready for the work, and Bob's would go in command of it. This was Roberts's mission. Go rescue the Hank Kandahar garrison, sock Ayub Khan in the nose, and bye-bye Afghanistan. General Frederick Slay Roberts faced an incredible challenge. With Kandahar on the verge of falling, with Ayub Khan's large army and its modern artillery outside the walls, the clock was ticking. The British would have to cover almost 320 miles as fast as possible, with as large a force as possible, over the hot, dusty plains of southern Afghanistan, without starving, dehydrating, or falling apart on the way. In short, this was an iron hand of logistics problem. Distance, conditions, time, capacity, and the enemy. No army could carry its food this far. Normal modes of transport would take too much time. The heat and lack of water were bound to be terrible. And what about the enemy? What about fighting all those tribesmen all the way down to Kandahar? To solve all these problems, Roberts would need some help. And he received it from a very unlikely source. Abdurrahman Khan, the new emir of Afghanistan, did not love the British, but he wanted them gone as quickly as possible. And he figured that helping Roberts get to Kandahar was the quickest way to make this happen. It didn't hurt that he was sending the British to, against his most dangerous rival. I get rid of the British and use them against my rival for the throne? Win, win. After all, there's always folks gunning for you if you're on top in Afghanistan. But if you're smart, you can get them to gun for each other. Roberts was allowed to select his own units, and he picked the best fighting regiments, including many of the ones that the British considered martial races. The 72nd Seaforth and 92nd Gordon Highlanders, the 60th Rifles, the 9th Lancers, and 75% of his army would, of course, be Indian. Four regiments of Bengalis, three regiments of Sikhs, two regiments of Gurkhas, and four regiments of Indian cavalry. But to make the trek, the force would have to be stripped to the bone. The soldiers would only carry 20 to 30 pounds instead of their usual 45. They would bring no wagons whatsoever, not even wheeled artillery. Any supplies they needed would be carried by camels or horses or mules to speed up the march. The artillery they did have were three batteries of mountain howitzers that would be disassembled and carried by the pack animals. 30 days of rations would go with the army, but for the most part the British would have to feed themselves en route. And this would have been impossible, but Abdurrahman had come through. He had gotten in touch with the Gilzai Pashtuns and the Kohistani Tajiks, telling them, look, the British are leaving. I'm making them leave. We beat them. So do me a big favor and give them the food and water they need so they leave faster. Abdurrahman even sent agents ahead of Roberts' force to arrange for food supplies on his line of march. Be a good sport, Bobs. Take out my rival for me. Oh, and do not let the door hit you on the way out. Roberts' force set out from Kabul on August 8, 1880, with 10,000 soldiers and 8,000 pack animals and 8,000 civilian camp followers. Almost entirely men, the women camp followers aren't a big presence at this point. This was a fearsome force to supply and support in the high summer of Afghanistan. Everyone remembered the march as one of the most strenuous experiences of their life. Water sources were few and far between, and it was hot. Hot, hot. Choking temperatures that hit well over 105, the sun beating down like a hammer. But then, of course, the nights got to below freezing. 
The thick dust choked and strangled the men, but they slogged forward at a forced march pace. Private Crane of the Ninth Lancers remembered the march. The tedious marching along the hot, dusty roads, sometimes parched with thirst, water not being procurable in some places, the one continual line of camels, mules, and donkeys, the loads on their backs almost bearing them down, the long line of infantry tramping along the hot, dusty road with the sun peeling the skin off our faces, all tramping on to the next campground. General Roberts's march from Kabul to Kandahar became one of the greatest feats in British military history. The pace was cracking, reaching 21 miles a day at certain points, an incredible marching speed for an unmotorized army. Roberts made sure to do most of his marching early in the day before the heat of the late afternoon. And the march was made easier by the sudden friendliness of the Afghans, who happily sold food and supplies to the tired army. Have a good time! Come back never! Bob's himself was soon struck by a fever and spent the last half of the march being carried in a litter. A most ignominious mode of conveyance for a general in service, but there was no help for it, for I could not sit a horse. Robert suffered headaches, nausea, and pain during the march, but still made sure he could see and be seen by his men. By the time they were halfway there, Roberts received messages that Ayub Khan was assaulting Kandahar. As fast as they were going, they needed to go faster, and they did. But by August 27th, they could relax a little bit. Ayub's attacks had been driven back, and when he heard that Roberts was blitzing down like the lightning bolt of Thor, he lifted the siege of Kandahar and began preparing for battle. Roberts allowed his men a little more rest and slowed the pace just a little on the final approach to the city. On August 29th, he received a letter from Ayub saying that this whole thing was a big misunderstanding. He had been forced to fight the British at Maiwand. Couldn't we talk about this? But Ayub was asking for mercy from the wrong man. Roberts responded that Ayub was always free to surrender. <laughs> when Roberts' troops arrived outside Kandahar on August 31st, they marched into legend. They had covered 320 miles in 21 days, and though they suffered quite a few sick and injured, only a handful of men had perished. They had lifted the siege of Kandahar in a lightning march across the heart of Afghanistan. There is something to be said. General Stewart had made the same march in reverse back in April. It had taken him a week longer, but he had fought a major battle en route. Both marches were incredible, but only Roberts's march became famous, partially because of what followed it. Because with barely a pause, Roberts heaved his sick, ailing body off the litter, got on horseback, and entered the city of Kandahar. One of Bob's quirks was that he was one of the smallest men in his army, but always chose one of the biggest horses. But no matter how sick he was, there was no way he was missing the final showdown. Within hours, he was planning his attack, the final battle of the Second Anglo-Afghan War. Ayub Khan had chosen an excellent defensive position west of Kandahar, behind the Babawali Hill system and close to the Argandab River. He had 15,000 men, mostly Afghan regulars, and 32 guns, including some guns captured from the British at Maiwand. Roberts had only around 11,000 men and 32 guns of smaller caliber, a smaller force attacking a bigger force in a tough position with better artillery. But these were some of the best units in the British Army, and this was Bob's. Roberts decided to pull out Old Reliable, a flanking maneuver. 
He would use the Kandahar garrison and the survivors of Maiwand to feint towards the center of the Afghan line, while passing his own forces around the Afghan right, capturing some villages looping around the base of the hills and driving into the Afghan rear. Yeah, a flank attack isn't that original, but it kept working, so don't fix what ain't broke, right? At 9am on September 1st, 1880, the Battle of Kandahar began. An artillery duel kicked off the battle as the khaki-clad British soldiers, still sunburnt and blistered from the march, formed ranks and stepped out into the sun and sand of Kandahar. One more fight, and this thing was going to be over. Before Roberts could finish his flanking maneuver, he would have to take the two villages blocking his path. This task fell to the Highlanders and the Gurkhas. The 92nd Highlanders and 2nd Gurkhas swarmed into Gundi Mullah Sahib Dad, taking the village at the point of the bayonet, while the 72nd Highlanders and 2nd Sikhs cleared Gundi Gan to their left. The Highlanders gave in tr into tradition, in some cases drawing their broadswords in a 19th century echo of the Highland Charge. But the Gurkhas were equally ferocious with their famous Kukris. There was apparently a long-running friendly competition between Scottish Highlanders and Nepalese Gurkhas to see who could be the craziest, stabbiest nutjobs in the empire. By 10.30, the villages were cleared and Roberts' flanking force began to turn Ayub Khan's right. The British and Indian forces advanced steadily through orchards, fields, and small suburbs, slowly enveloping the Afghan lines. Though they fought as fiercely as ever, the Afghans fell back slowly, their line bending into a V as their right was driven in and their left pinned down by the survivors of Maiwand. As one, then a few, then more Pashtun tribesmen began to race to the rear, the British finally cracked through the lines and breached into Ayub Khan's camp. The Highlanders and Gurkhas overran his famous artillery with sword and knife and bayonet, capturing all of his artillery, including the two guns the British had lost at Maiwand. Ayub Khan's personal tent with his valuable Persian rugs was taken intact. The Afghan army fled in disorder, crossing the river and racing back for the safety of the Helmand Valley. The only stain on the triumph was the failure of the British cavalry to effectively pursue their opponents. Ayub Khan, for all that he had lost, would live to fight another day. But the Battle of Kandahar was the final battle, the final exclamation point of the Second Anglo-Afghan War. General Roberts' triumph would win him eternal fame within the British Empire. At the cost of 40 killed and 210 wounded, he had relieved Kandahar and inflicted a punishing blow that seemed to erase the shame of Maiwand, and of course his own personal shame, from the hangings in Kabul. In their eyes, British honor had been restored. But, Kandahar did not fundamentally alter the outcome of the war. It only confirmed what the British had already learned and already knew. They could win as many field battles as they wanted, but they could not hold the country. They might defeat an Afghan army, but they could not defeat the Afghans. After reorganizing and resupplying, the British began the journey home. Stuart's army had left Kabul only a couple days after Roberts had, going back down the Khyber Pass into India. But the force in Kandahar took their time tying up loose ends, making supply arrangements, and waiting out the winter. The last British units only left Kandahar on April 21st, 1881, eight months after the battle and by May, all British forces had cleared Afghanistan. The Second Anglo-Afghan War was over. For real this time. No take-backsies. But the aftermath was far from settled. Both the British and the Afghans had a bunch of assorted issues to sort out in the post-war period. For the Afghans, the main issue was re-establishing order. 
the British invasion and occupation had not only blown up the political system, but wreaked terrible havoc on the Afghan economy, with both Kandahar and Kabul suffering heavy damage. And as the British left, a civil war immediately broke out between Abdurrahman, who was on the throne, and his cousin Ayub Khan. But that was settled pretty quickly. As soon as the British left Kandahar, Ayub marched out again and occupied the city in July 1881. But Abdurrahman, who was always popular, called out the tribes and defeated his rival in a second Kandahar battle that autumn. This time, there would be no bouncing back for Ayub Khan. He was forced to flee and eventually wound up as a guest, ironically, of the British in India. Ayub is still remembered in Afghanistan as a national hero for his great victory at Mai Wand. So it's kind of weird that like the British like gave him an apartment and you know gave him an allowance every now and then. But Ayub's family lived in Pakistan. Uh, several of his descendants later became British army officers, irony, and Pakistani generals. And one of his great grandsons was a professional polo player. Good for him. The new Emir of Afghanistan, Abdurrahman Khan, surprised everyone by remaining a loyal British ally throughout his reign. Far from being a Russian puppet, he had always been at heart an Afghan nationalist and charted the course he thought was best for his country. And unlike some other Afghan leaders who were scared of the Russians, Abdurrahman had spent enough time with them that he just wasn't afraid of them. He didn't find them that impressive. Familiarity breeds contempt. Abdurrahman spent 15 years in Russia was like, these guys ain't so much. But the, the British were more immediately dangerous, and they also had a lot more to offer. So long as Abdurrahman ruled Afghanistan, the Russians would stay out and India would remain secure. The British could not have designed a better ruler of Afghanistan to suit their purposes. Accidentally, they'd found the perfect guy. Abdurrahman's biggest concerns were local. Unlike his father Dost Muhammad or his uncle Sher Ali, he had no intention of ruling a decentralized fractured kingdom. He made it his mission to centralize Afghanistan by force. Everyone would know exactly who was on top in Afghanistan. Abdurrahman spent his 20 years in office, 20 years in the throne, breaking the power of the tribes and the mullahs to his will. He was the strongest leader his country had known in a century. But strong is not good. Lots of his tactics, forced conversion, ethnic displacement, just out-and-out -out slaughter, bear more than a little resemblance to Russian imperial tactics. I guess he learned something from his hosts after all. Most notably, the people of Nuristan, who had long followed an ancient animist religion closely related to Hinduism. They had followed this religion for thousands of years. They were the only non-Muslim tribe really in Afghanistan, and Abdurrahman converted them by force during his reign. When he finally died in 1901, when Abdurrahman finally died, something truly crazy happened. A peaceful Afghan transfer of power to his son Habibullah. Afghanistan was a unified, centralized state at the price of lots of murder and borderline to actual genocide. Abdurrahman remains one of Afghanistan's most controversial leaders, admired and hated in equal amounts, forever remembered as the Iron Amir. But one thing still needed to be patched up, and that was the border. In 1893, Sir Mortimer Durand arrived to map out the very loosely defined border between India and Afghanistan. The result was one of the most infamous examples of Europeans drawing borders that mess up everything. Because Durand's priority wasn't ethnic lines or obvious geographic lines, Durand was assigned to make a defensible frontier, 
So the result was that Duran drew lines through the middle of villages, through tribal homelands, even between farmers and their fields. The Durand Line, as it was called, literally divided the Pashtun homeland in two in favor of a more topographically defensible frontier. The result was a geographic monstrosity, a border that made no sense to the people on the ground. Despite Afghanistan being the traditional Pashtun homeland, the Durand Line left the majority of Pashtuns within the British area, in what is now Pakistan. The Pashtuns hated the Durand Line. It divided centuries-old economies, societies, and even families on a whim. So they just ignored it. The Afghan-India and later the Afghan-Pakistan border would remain uncontrollable, un, you know, porous until the 21st century. To the British, it became the Northwest Frontier, a Wild West region full of unruly tribes and impossible terrain, an insurgency nightmare for the rest of their empire in India. When the Soviets, and later the Americans, also tried to occupy Afghanistan, the flow of money and weapons and terrorists across the Durand Line would be impossible to prevent, because everybody still treated the border like it wasn't there. If you served in Afghanistan and got frustrated with the Taliban crossing the border like it wasn't there, you can blame Mortimer Durand. General Frederick Roberts returned to a hero's welcome in Britain, where everyone had forgotten about that whole hanging people thing. He was thanked for his service by the Queen and by Parliament and received two swords and the title of Baron Roberts of Kandahar. He had a long military career ahead of him. He might even show up again in this podcast if we ever get to the Boer War. So maybe this isn't the last you've seen of Fred Roberts, the British Empire's littlest general. Roberts ordered a Kabul to Kandahar medal struck for everyone who had taken part in the march, even his horse. Queen Victoria also went out of her way to meet the most famous animal hero of the war, Bobby, the little white terrier that had survived my wand in Kandahar. Bobby even got a medal. <laughs> when he passed away, the regiment had him stuffed, and he can still be seen in the Museum of the 66th Foot, decorated with his Afghanistan medal. Malala of my wand is allegedly buried in a shrine near her village, along with her fiancé and father. Her shrine is still a holy place, a sacred place for residents of the area, and despite being barely noticed in English-language accounts of the war, she became one of the most legendary figures of Afghan patriotism. Many baby girls have been named for her since her death, including one you may have heard of. Malala Yousafzai, the Pakistani Pashtun feminist and women's education activist, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize at age 17 for her work in defiance of the Taliban. She was named for the great Pashtun heroine who had defied her own oppressors over a century earlier. Malala Yousafzai was shot for her beliefs as well, but unlike the Malala of legend, she survived. I don't think anyone can argue that, whether or not her namesake existed, she certainly exemplifies her courage. Malala of My Wand remains one of the most famous folk heroines in Pashtun history. If her story isn't true, it should be true. The Anglo-Afghan Wars were essentially over. There would be skirmishes, big and small, along the northwest frontier between the British Army and the Pashtun tribes. Some of them were almost fully-fledged battles. Even a third Anglo-Afghan war that flared up in 1919, which is barely even worth a short round to be honest. It lasted like a month, mainly interesting for the brief British use of aircraft. But the British never did try to outright conquer Afghanistan again. Once was too many, twice was even worse. Until the final British days in India in 1947, 
the border would remain turbulent, but unviolated. Bobbs himself gave the most clear-headed assessment of the situation after returning to England. When someone asked him about what the policy should now be towards Afghanistan, Bobbs just said, We have nothing to fear from Afghanistan, and the best thing to do is to leave it as much as possible to itself. I feel sure I am right when I say that the less the Afghans see of us, the less they will dislike us. Should Russia in future years attempt to conquer Afghanistan or invade India through it, we should have a better chance of attaching the Afghans to our interests if we avoid all interference with them in the meantime. Bob's is like, boys, I've been there. I'll tell you right now, leave those people alone. Russia, of course, would invade Afghanistan, but that's a story for another day. They would learn the hard way, just as the British had, just as the Americans would. It's easy to get an army into Afghanistan. It is not so easy to get that army out again. The safest bet? Let someone else be on top in Afghanistan. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? So guys, that was the story of the Second Anglo-Afghan War. Lots of crazy events, crazy people, plenty of good old-fashioned murder. Makes me nostalgic for when I was writing that first episode, going through like 20 drafts and 5 recordings until I managed to get it right. You'll be happy to know that every episode since then has been much easier. So what can we learn from this story besides stop invading Afghanistan, which is already a really good lesson? But looking it all over, it's pretty clear that while the British did not have a good time in the Second War, it wasn't nearly as disastrous as the First War, and certainly less lethal. Fewer military and civilian casualties on both sides, despite the new weaponry both used. I mean, the Battle of Maiwand was a bad British defeat, but compared to the 1842 retreat from Kabul and the destruction of Elphinstone's army, it was just a scratch compared to that. One of the big differences is that both sides honestly fought much better. With the exception of the Sherpur cantonment, there were a lot fewer mass assaults, a lot less rigid fighting formations, a lot more skillful tactics. All the Afghan commanders were generally pretty good. And as for the British, even if Frederick Roberts got a little murder-happy during his occupation of Kabul, which shows a certain lack of judgment and moral fiber, when it came to military skill and leadership, he was head and shoulders above anyone from the First War, above most commanders in general. In fact, if you go back in time and, repl and magically replace Elphinstone with Bob's, well, things don't go the same way at all, in my opinion. Leadership really does make a difference. But the real British problems in the Anglo-Afghan wars were strategic and political, not tactical. The same with most people who have tried to occupy the country. The platoon leader, the brigade commander, even the, even the army commander can do things right, but the whole concept of the war is faulty. Because everyone wants to mold the Afghans into their own image. The British Indian government tried to set up a puppet kingdom, like their own system back in India. The Soviets tried to build a centralized communist state, like their system. The Americans tried to build a liberal democracy, like our system. The occupiers keep trying to replicate themselves. This goes hand in hand with the idea that without outside help or pressure, Afghanistan is just a medieval society that has never changed. But it has changed, and it will change. The Afghans, like any people, just want change on their own terms, not at the whims of their overlords. 
They have been side characters or antagonists in everyone else's story, but they are the heroes of theirs. And as long as their occupiers fail to see them as people with agency and choices and autonomy, people who have the right to choose their own destiny, the occupiers will continue to fail. Because even if the Second Anglo-Afghan War went much differently for the British than the First, the outcome was the same. Afghan ruler restored, autonomy regained, British forces withdrawn. Neither war accomplished the initial objectives they set out with because of a central failure to recognize the realities of Afghanistan. The people, not the Kabul elite or their monarchs, or eventually their communist party or eventually their president, are the real rulers of the land. Abdurrahman was maybe Afghanistan's only leader to really control the country, and it took brutal violence and iron will and 20 years to accomplish it, something the British never had the resources or the will to achieve. That is the central failure of most imperial or occupying powers in general, an inability to see the population as diverse, intelligent, proactive people who are not a monolith, who are not a faceless mass to be molded and shaped as you please. The Afghans went into British national myth as some sort of legendary enemy, their nation impossible to conquer, a graveyard of empires. But the British and those who followed them dug their own graves each time by failing to account for the Afghans as they were, not as they imagined them to be or wanted them to be. The cultural blinders of colonialism, imperialism, and racism shielded them from the reality of the war they were trying to fight. They did not understand Afghanistan or the Afghans, so they didn't understand the war. For the Afghans, the British invasions transformed their country. It brought them violently onto center stage in global affairs, caught between two Christian empires and struggling to preserve their homeland from foreign rule. The wars, the invasions, forced them to reform their society, change old ways, adopt new government and military systems, and transform their economy to meet the new reality. The result of the Anglo-Afghan wars in Afghanistan was the centralization of the country, the reshaping of lots of forces within their society. Afghanistan was far from a stagnant biblical land, untouched by time in the 19th century. And contrary to the myth of Afghanistan always being violent, after Abdurrahman's bloody unification, the country would remain relatively peaceful for decades, just doing their own thing, the way they always wanted. Long after the great game ended, Afghanistan minded its own business, until it was caught between empires again in the Cold War. On December 27, 1979, several planes of Soviet paratroopers and Spetsnaz landed in Kabul airport on what you might call a special military operation. Afghanistan's period of quiet was over. The Soviet-Afghan war had begun. It was time to become the graveyard of empires once again. And if my plans for this podcast go well, if support stays high and you guys keep listening, I plan to see you for that story in Season 3. Thanks for listening today, and thanks for returning to support this podcast in Season 2. I hope you had a good time, because the British sure didn't, again. If you like what you've heard today, tell your friends about it, especially if they're your buffer state against a foreign power. If you don't like what you've heard, tell your enemies. If you want to read a short article on the Soviet-Afghan war just to continue this story a bit, it is on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to contribute to my book fund, I have a donate button there as well. 
I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod, or just drop me a line at Unknown Soldiers Podcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary. Lay it on me. And once again, woo, guys, we have so many places to go and we're just getting started. Remember that we are on a semi-weekly schedule now, so my next full episode will be in two weeks. So I will see you then for another trip to another crazy place full of violence. Check back here on Unknown Soldiers. <laughs>